This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Tonight I want to uh, go to the book of Hebrews, uh, the 12th chapter of Hebrews. I'm just reading uh, two verses, 14 and 15. So Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, particularly that last part. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Title of my message tonight is The Most Dangerous Plant in the World. And without question, the root of bitterness is the most dangerous plant in the world. It causes you to have a terrible, wasteful, hurtful, negative, self-consuming, self-destructing disposition that any man or woman can ever possess. It's a horrible, terrible thing. It breeds resentment, envy, unforgiveness, hatred, suspicion, jealousy. It sours the spirit, it casts a cloud over the soul, it binds, blinds the mind, and it hardens the heart, and it stunts your spiritual growth. Bitterness is a thief. It will steal your peace. It's a dampener. It will smother your joy. It's a poison that kills. It's a toxic, it's corrosive, it's soul-polluting. It clings like a vine. It's a root that goes deep. It has branches that spread. Talk about Japanese knotweed. This is worse because this is something that goes right down into your very soul. In Hebrews 12, the scriptures we just read, the writer here urges and warns the followers of Christ not to allow this noxious, and theater to get into their souls because if it does and takes root, then it will bring ruin not only to themselves but to others around them. In Hebrews 12, 15, there is a reference to Deuteronomy 29, 18. Looking back to where the children of Israel and how on their journey through the wilderness they rebelled against God and they complained bitterly about the manna that God gave them, but how he was leading them, and they complained against the leadership and against Moses, and they became very, very bitter, terribly bitter. And the writer to the Hebrews is warning these Jewish Christians not to fall into the same trap because they too are going through a very difficult time. On their journey of faith, they're being persecuted, they're in trouble, the government... Jewish people, they're in real trouble and it's hurting them. It's hurting their jobs, it's hurting their families, it's affecting their spirit. And they're beginning to complain and some of them have left the church altogether. That's why the writer says, forsake not the forsaking of ourselves together as the manner of some is. 
And so he's warning them not to fall into this trap of bitterness. So what causes bitterness? How can we overcome it? Because all of us without fail will have an opportunity to be bitter about something or somebody. That surely will come your way at some point if it hasn't already. So how do we deal with that? What, what causes it? What is this bitterness thing? Well, first of all, it's a negative response to adversity. Hence the warning in Hebrews 12, a negative response to adversity. Now, I'm not talking about our initial response because our initial response to bad things usually is universally negative. Our first reaction is usually negative. We don't like it. We don't want it. <laughs> uh, and we, we, we somehow rise up against that negatively. But I'm not talking about that because that's our human nature. will do that instantly. But what I'm talking about is it goes on. Do we allow that to get in and to take root and to fester within our souls and simmer there? And then we display resentment and anger towards God even and towards others around us. We may say, God, why did you let this happen to me? How come this happens to me? I didn't deserve this. Why did they say that? Why did he do that? Why do they act that way towards me? And on and on it goes. And we need to be very, very careful that that doesn't get roots in our spirit because it gets harder to deal with as it goes on. Let me tell you about a girl called Charlotte Elliott. Let me read this. She was an embittered woman, Charlotte Elliott of Brighton, England. Her health was broken and her disability had hardened her. If God loved me, she muttered, he would not have treated me this way. Hoping to help her, a Swiss minister named Dr. Caesar Milan visited the Elliots on May 9, 1822. And over dinner, Charlotte lost her temper and reeled against God and her family in a violent outburst. Her embarrassed family left the room and Dr. Milan, left alone with her, stared at her across the table. You're tired of yourself, aren't you? He said at length. You're holding on to your hate and anger because you have nothing else in the world to cling to. Consequently, you become sour and bitter and resentful. Well, what is your, clear, what is your cure, asked Charlotte? The faith that you're trying to despise. And as they talked, Charlotte softened. If I wanted to become a Christian and to share the peace and joy that you possess, she finally asked, what would I do? Well, you would give yourself to God just as you are now with your fightings and your fears and your hates and your loves and your pride and your shame. I would come to God just as I am, is that right? Charlotte did come just as she was. Her heart was changed that day. And time passed, as time passed, she found and claimed John 6, 37 as a special verse for her. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Several years later, her brother, the Reverend Henry Elliot, was raising funds for a school for the children of poor clergymen. And Charlotte wrote a poem, and it was printed and sold across England. The leaflet said, Sold for the benefit of St. Margaret's Hall, Brighton. Him that cometh to me, I will in no ways cast out. And underneath was Charlotte's poem, which has since become the most famous invitational hymn in history. Just as I am, without one plea, 
but that your blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. She dealt with her bitterness and her anger and her resentment. And she allowed God to come into her life and give her peace in her heart and salvation for her soul. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.3, Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a believer, there's going to be hard times. And that's not a popular message today, but it's the truth nonetheless. There will be hard times. And Paul says, endure it. It may not have a quick answer. We all want a quick answer, an instant answer. But Paul says that doesn't always happen. So he says, in your hardship, in the hard times, endure it as a good soldier. A soldier is toughened up for the battle. And in life, there are many battles. And as believers, we can't be too soft. We have to toughen up. And if necessary, endure until the answer comes. And so a negative response to adversity will cause bitterness. An unforgiving spirit will cause bitterness. You've been wronged, you've been slighted, you've been rejected, you've been insulted, you've been spoken against, maybe you've been lied about. How do you respond? How do you deal with that? Do you look for revenge? Do you refuse to let go? Do you harbor resentment? Maybe even hatred? And does it still rankle after all these years? Does it still rankle in your spirit? If it does, can I, can I say kindly to you tonight, if that is the case, there's a root of bitterness that hasn't been dealt with. And until and unless you deal with it, it will keep rankling because the root is lodged in your heart. William Shakespeare said, Heat not a furnace so hot for your foe that it doth sing thyself. William Sacker said, He that carries bitterness to bed with him will find the devil creep between the sheets. And that's not your husband or your wife. Some of you may think that, but it isn't. No matter how long you nurse a grudge, it will not get any better. In fact, it will get worse. Captain Ahab, in the famous story of Moby Dick, one of those powerful pictures of an embittered heart is seen in Herman Melville's character, Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. In a violent confrontation at sea, the great white whale dubbed Moby Dick had sliced off Ahab's leg. Ahab had been carried to his bunk in the bowels of the ship, and there he lay, clinging to life, leg absent during the return voyage. For long months of days and weeks, Ahab and anguish lay stretchered together in one hammock, Rounding in midwinter that dreary, howling Patagonian cape as it then was, that his torn body and gashed soul bled into one another, and so an interfusing made him mad. Ahab was eventually fitted with a peg leg, but there was no prosthesis for the soul. Obsessed with hate, Ahab set his face to search out and destroy Moby Dick, whatever the cost. 
He fitted a ship, he hired a crew, and mounted a voyage of vengeance, which led to his death, the destruction of the ship, the Pequot, and the loss of all his men, save one Ishmael, who lived to tell the tale. He could not let it go, even to the point of his own destruction and those around him. He was so embittered and so angry at what had happened to him. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. There's a reason why we cannot be bitter and angry with people. Because God and his mercy has forgiven us. John Wesley one time was on board a ship and there was a very wealthy man who had a servant. And Wesley noticed that he had been very unkind and rude and mistreated the servant very, very badly. So Wesley went to the important man. He said to him, Sir, he says, you need to ask forgiveness of your servant. And the man says, I never forgive. Then, sir, he said, you better never sin. <laughs> if we never can forgive, we better never sin. Because God will forgive us on the basis of what we forgive. If we can't forgive others, God can't forgive us. Forgiveness is a big subject on its own, which we're not going to tonight. Another thing that causes bitterness is wrong motives or jealousy. Secretly despising the success of others. I know that none of us would be like that. Unwillingness to recognize or congratulate others. Rejoicing when somebody you don't like fails or falls. Now, you would never do that. Sure, you wouldn't. Nice Christians as you are. <laughs> but it's amazing how easily we can become like that. Not actually glad that somebody has succeeded or actually glad when somebody fails. Maybe having a Jonah complex. You know what a Jonah complex is? Well, let me show you. Let me tell you. You don't need to turn to this, but let me just read a little bit from Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Whenever Jonah got this command of the Lord, he did the complete opposite. He didn't want to do it. He did not want to go to the Ninevites. He hated them with a passion. These were cruel, wicked people who had done God's people much harm. 
and he was an embittered man against them. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to preach to them. I've got a message to you, for you to deliver to them. And he didn't want to do it. And so he ran from the presence of the Lord. And you know what happened, don't you? Remember how that there's a great storm when he was on board and they wondered why the storm came about and Jonah admitted, he says, well, it's my fault. I'm running from the Lord. So what did they do? They threw him overboard. I got rid of him. And of course, that great fish swallowed him up. He was in the belly of that great fish until it spat him out on the shore. And then in chapter three, for the second time, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, massive city, but an exceedingly cruel people, wicked beyond belief. A three-day journey in extent, so it was a massive city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now you'd think he'd be glad to preach that message because he hated them and was embittered against them. Yet forty days, the city shall be overthrown. But he knew God was warning them, and if they would heed God's warning, then they would be spared. He knew that, and he didn't want them spared. Imagine a preacher not wanting people to be saved. Can you imagine that? He would rather they go to hell than be saved. Some preacher, huh? Boy, he was embittered, wasn't he? And so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let every man and beast be covered in sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And here's the grace of God, which Jonah knew. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. <laughs> the very thing that Jonah knew would happen, the very thing he didn't want to happen, he did not want them to repent because he knew God's mercy was so great. He wanted them to be angry with God and he wanted God to wipe them out and destroy them. He was so embittered. It says in the next verse, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. Imagine being a preacher being angry because people repented and turned to God. How embittered was Jonah the preacher, huh? And so he prayed to the Lord and says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? In other words, I knew this would happen. Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Can you imagine this man? 
He's so embittered that he, that he says, Lord, I, just do what you like with them. Just take me out of here. I, just, I, I can't bear to watch them people being spared. That's how embittered this man was. Desperate, isn't it? Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Huh. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade that he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might shade, be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Better people are miserable. They're absolutely miserable. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as the morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm so that it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. He's feeling really sorry for himself. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Can you imagine that this man is so embittered, now he's become so arrogant and angry that he's saying this to Almighty God? He's arguing with God? But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. Should not I have pity? Should, sorry, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and much livestock? Have I not a right to be merciful and to whom I want to show mercy? That's what he said. Is that not my right? You're angry about this plant that you did nothing to create, that I did, but I created these people? Have I not got a right to to love them and show mercy to them? See, that is a question that's left up in the air for us to answer. For maybe the people that we dislike, for the people that maybe we're angry with, for the people that maybe we're embittered about, that God wants to bless, that God wants to show mercy to. You see... These things are here for our admonition so that we may learn. And so, there's another little story here I want to show you. In 1 Kings chapter 20, and it's about another Ahab, but it's King Ahab. It's 20 and 21, actually. In 1 Kings chapter 20, and, and Brother John preached on this subject just recently. Ben-Hadad and 32 kings uh, were coming against King Ahab of Israel. He was married to Jezebel, you remember. And how that uh, Ahab was going to cave in and compromise, and his elder says, no, don't, don't stand up to this. Uh, and God sent a prophet to him to give him a message. And whenever they came against him, Ahab won that battle, and God said, Don't, do not spare Ben-Hadad. Don't spare him. Wipe them out. Evil, wicked people. But he spared the king. He spared them. And he shouldn't have spared them. And so, 
the prophet went back. Uh, so in, in chapter 20, in verse 42, the prophet went back again. He said to him, Thus saith the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Bitter people will be sullen and displeased. And so he's angry and he's bitter and he's sullen. But look what happens in the next chapter. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Land was very, very important to the Jewish people. Land that was given them by God to be kept in their family and their tribes. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased. He's taken the hump, as we would say. Here's a big grown man, sullen and displeased embittered and angry, sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. <laughs> He's like a big child, isn't he? He's taken the hump. He goes to his bed. He won't eat. He turns his face to the wall. This is the king of Israel. This is a man who has more money than he could spend in a lifetime. He has gold and silver and lands galore. And he's angry and embittered because one little vineyard next door, the man won't give it to him. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite. And, he, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. So Jezebel's wife said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with a seal and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And then she wrote the letters uh, to proclaim a fast. And, and, well, let me just read it to you. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, but seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You blaspheme God and the king. Take him out and stone him that he may die. And that's exactly what they did. And so Jezebel comes back and says, There you are. You've got your vineyard. But notice this here in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. And he is 
And there he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick blood even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He said, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, if you read on down, verse 23, And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up and he behaved abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. <clears throat> and here is the amazing grace of God. And so it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. And because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. <clears throat> See how far bitterness can take a man or a woman to destroy themselves? And only the grace of God turned that situation around. By the way, the Ninevites were spared for another hundred years until their repentance was over and then they became worse than ever they were. And finally, they were destroyed. The Bible says that jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire and most vehement heat. Wrong motives or jealousy can cause bitterness. Leslie Flynn said, The envious man feels others' fortunes are his misfortunes, their profits his loss, their blessings his bane, their health his illness, their promotion his demotion, their success his failure. Erwin Lutzer said, Envy is rebellion against God's leading in the lives of his children. It is saying God has no right to bless someone else more than you. <laughs> well, Warren Wearsby said, I like this, he said, It always amazes me how God blesses people I don't like. <laughs> Isn't that a terrible thing? <laughs> the very person you don't like, God goes out of his way to bless them. And to make you know he's blessed them. <laughs> Why would he do that? To test you. To show you what's in your heart. <laughs> we'll go quickly. Another thing that, that brings bitterness is making our love conditional. Remember that God's love towards us was unconditional. We love him because he first loved us. There was nothing lovely about us. There was nothing loving about us. We were hopeless, lost sinners. He broke his laws continually. But in his mercy, he loved us before we ever loved him. Colossians 3, 18, 19. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. This is for us men. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Bitter here means resentment or an increased angry attitude of mind. In other words, if we're bitter towards our wives, then we're not loving unconditionally. Now, we can magnify faults, we can make mountains out of molehills, we can major on minors, we allow bugbears to become raging bears. Now, I know that you wouldn't do that, of course, because you're too spiritual, aren't you? There's plenty of things in each other's lives to crack us up, isn't there? Now, Sally and I are married 51 years, and we have come to the realization that there's parts of us is not going to change. Not going to change. So what do you do with that? Accept that. Accept that. It's not going to change. After 51 years, if it hasn't changed now, it's not going to change. So you have to accept that. And live with that. And embrace that. It may bug the life out of each other, but... <laughs> would you keep putting that... Put that toilet seat down if I told you a thousand times. <laughs> let, me end it. let me tell you a secret. Confession's good for the soul, isn't it? It got so bad a while back, she told me so many times that she wrote out a big notice and stuck it on the seat. So every time you left it in the lid, there it was. And I says, well, what when the home group comes in? What if somebody needs to use the loo? She says, well, they'll get the message too. And we can identify with that, can't we? <laughs> the laundry basket's over there. It's not the bathroom floor. <laughs> now, you women can identify with that, can't you? Yes. <laughs> yes, there you are. Thank you, Norma. <laughs> Eric and Louise were on honeymoon. And Eric said to Louise, now he says, darling... Uh, I need to tell you something. Now that we're married, he says, I I've noticed that you have a few faults. I hope you don't mind me telling you. She says, no, darling, I don't mind you telling me because those few faults is what kept me from having a better husband. The only book in the Bible that's full of romantic, passionate love is Song of Solomon, isn't it? It's strange how the initials is SOS, isn't it? <laughs> Let's not make our love conditional. It's not I love you if, or I love you when, or I love you until. It's I love you, full stop, unconditionally. Warts and all, faults and all. Now we work on that, and we try to do the best we can do. But we're human, and we make our faults and mistakes. But 
we get over that and we live with that. Hmm. Right. Finally. In case I make this hole bigger. Pot noodles tonight again, I'm afraid. <laughs> no steak dinner tonight. And here's the thing that will definitely cause you to be better. Feeling, feeling to let go of your past hurts. Picking at the scab. Not letting the wound heal. Someone said every time I have a rhyme with my wife, she doesn't become historical. It's hysterical. She becomes historical. She digs up the past. But you wouldn't do that because you're nice Christians. So there must come a point when you have to stop digging up the past, taking out the scab, <laughs> continually opening the old wounds. I said to you before, I'm sure, someone said, you can lick your wounds and live your life, or you can live your wounds and lick your life. If you continually live your wounds, you're going to lick your life. Lick your wounds if you must, and then go on. But don't keep living your wounds. Paul said, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. You can't walk backwards into the future. You have to forget those things which are behind. Because if you don't, you'll never actually get rid of that bitterness that rises in your heart. In his book, Guiding Your Family in a Misguided World, Dr. Tony Evans, let me read this, Dr. Tony Evans tells of two monks walking through the countryside toward another village. And as they came to the edge of a river, they saw an old woman sitting there, upset because there was no bridge. The first monk offered to carry her across to the woman's great relief. So the two monks joined hands, lifted her between them, <coughs> carried her across the river. When they got to the other side, they set her down, and she went on her way. And after they had walked another mile or so, the second monk began to complain. Look at my clothes, he said. They're filthy from carrying that woman across the river. And my back still hurts from lifting her. I can feel it getting stiff. The first monk just smiled and nodded his head. A few minutes later, the second monk, gr monk griped again. My back is hurting me so badly, and it's all because we had to carry that silly woman across the river. I can't go any further because of the pain. Why is it that you're not complaining about it too? Doesn't your back hurt? Of course not, the monk, first monk replied. You're still carrying the woman, but I set her down five miles ago. <laughs> And sometimes we still carry that hurt and that injustice and that pain for years. And we should have left it five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But we still carry it and it hurts us. The most dangerous plant in the world is the root of bitterness. And it's time to get it out, to let it go, to forgive. You may not forget. It may always be in your memory, but the pain of it, the hurt of it, the unfairness of it, the injustice of it, you got to let it go.
because otherwise you'll be stuck in the past and you'll never recover from it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk